So it's great um, to also be looking at this theme, Living Tense, um, throughout our summer series. It's always great also to have the opportunity to hear from different voices as they both interview and speak. And so it's great that Trevor's going to be taking us on further this morning. Um, Johnny is back. It's great to see you, Johnny. Um, we managed without you. Isn't that amazing? Like, you know, sound and PowerPoint, it all worked thanks to Caleb and Rose and Kez and others did a great job. Um, but all, but we don't have the uh, podcast up, but we hope that they will be up. So you can do a binge listen um, over the next few uh, uh, days to um, our Living Tent series. So we'll have the first couple up on the Tabernacle, which would be good for you to listen to if you've missed them, just to bring you up to speed. And then Trevor's will be up afterwards. So God bless you, Trevor. As you share, we pray the Spirit of the Lord would anoint you and come upon you. And uh, Lord, that you would give him help as he reveals and unpacks your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Go for it, Trevor. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Apparently, you had a uh, a cane up here speaking last week. So you'll be very blessed that you have the better looking version here today. <laughs> Maybe that's up for debate. But we're talking, as you know, over the summer on living tents. Living tents. And rumor has it that uh, any of you that are on social media and are familiar with Stephen McIntyre would think that maybe three weeks ago he was boycotting this series because he wasn't here because I think he misunderstood that it was living in a tent. But uh, he's twigged on what it's really about, and it's good to have him here on the computer this morning. So just to um, recap a wee bit on what Al has been talking about over the last couple of weeks, we want to, if you put the slide up, Stephen, we want to study the tabernacle to help inspire us around how we can build a home together for God. How we can build a home together for God, understanding that the home is us. We are where God wants to dwell. We're the people. It's about us. The next slide, we want to study the tabernacle to help us understand better the real house of God on the earth today. God building his house with living stones. It says in Hebrews 8, verse 5, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. A copy and a shadow, or a model in a sense. To learn the pattern, look at the pattern of the model and see how that model, how that pattern, how that picture, that image, how it speaks to us, and how we can build our lives upon it. Exodus 25, verses 8 to 9 said, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God's prescription of the, the tabernacle furniture. We could read at length about this, and it's, it's all very wordy in those early parts of the Old Testament, but God gave Moses an exact prescription of what he wanted him to do and how he wanted him to do it. And it was very finely detailed. And he instructed him to do it exactly 
as he'd been told. But if you go and study it up yourself and have a read at it, you'll notice that in God's prescription to Moses, he began with the Ark of the Covenant and then finished with the brazen altar. Now, that seems a wee bit strange because we're then looking at moving into the tabernacle and the brazen altar being the first thing that we come to. But then when we think about it, we realize that that is why, that is because God was given the prescription from his perspective, that he was working from the inwards looking out. So the, the, the altar was the last thing from God's point of view being right at the very heart of the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. But the, the altar being the first thing that the people of Israel would encounter upon entering. God's prescription comes from his perspective. And his indwelling presence in the tabernacle was right at the very core of the structure. Al has put up pictures in previous weeks where we see all the, the different items that we'll be studying over the next while, all how they were laid out within the outer perimeter of the, the tabernacle in that courtyard, and then how they all came together. But the focus was always working inwards to the center, right into that holiest of places, the Holy of Holies. Do you know something? I, I believe that God's, God's indwelling presence in us is found at the very core of our being. It's not about just the stuff we do and the places we go and the books we read. It's how all of those things all contribute towards making us who we are. And right at the center of our being is where God resides in us. And that's why we have to work hard to make sure that we, as tabernacles, houses of the Lord, that we're presenting ourselves as the best homes possible for him. Not just in our appearance, but in our very most innermost being, the very core of our person that maybe not too many other people know an awful lot about. As I've said, when people would enter into the, the tabernacle, the first thing that they'd be confronted with was the brazen altar. As soon as they would enter through the, the gates or the doors, that's what would be there before them. And it's interesting that I spoke here on this exact same weekend last year and spoke on Psalm 24, where it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Those gates, those doors had to be lifted up as it says in Psalm 24, for the king of glory to come in. But even within the tabernacle, those gates, those doors needed lifted up. There were curtains. Those curtains had to be lifted up, drawn back to allow the people to enter in. I wonder if we're seeing a pattern. The pattern of the tabernacle in the next slide speaks to the person of Christ and the postures of the Christian life as we live in the presence of God. It's interesting too that uh, Vivian was a wee bit worried maybe about me speaking today because if we focus 
on, if I think too much about patterns, the pattern last year was that I spoke on the Sunday morning and went home and had a heart attack. <laughs> Ended up in hospital for a few days. And we were sort of wondering, you know, was, was this Al's sense of humor? Did he, did he think it was a good idea to maybe try for a repeat performance? But we've prayed hard against that. We wouldn't want that happening. And do you know something? There's, there's a lot of stuff happens to us. Stuff with no control over. I felt perfectly well that Sunday morning. But I went home and felt terrible. And I had no control over that. There's a lot of stuff happens to us. There's a lot of stuff we do. There's a lot of stuff goes on in life. But yet, to quote someone very famous, a fellow called Alan Emerson, that you listen to an awful lot, right back in 2019, Alan said, God has never wanted anything more than a lived-in encounter with me. Now think about that. In all of everything that goes on in life, God does not want anything more than a lived-in encounter with every single one of us. That was part of a whole series on build an altar, pitch a tent, and dig a well. That was right back in High Street Mall. And if you went down there to look now where we used to be, the, you wouldn't find the altars, the tents, and the wells because it's all wiped out and rebuilt and changed. But we did that there. We did it again in McGann West. We did it again when we came to this building. And we're going to do it another time as we move up the hill into our new building. And that's part of what we are keeping in our minds as we go through this series of how we might best prepare ourselves for what God has ahead of us. If we look at a, a picture of this altar that was this item in the, in the tabernacle, it was just, a, I suppose, really a, a, a very ornate fire pit. A few of you, I'm sure, have fire pits in your garden. I know Alan likes to post pictures of his. I like my barbecues. Could be a fancy barbecue. That's what they put on it. Bulls and goats and sheep and different animals were offered for sacrifice. That's what it looked like. But it had a very specific plan, specific design, and specific purpose. We we'll read about it in Exodus 27. where God said, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its corners. And you shall set under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar, and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, 
as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. If you look on, in your own time, we'll not take time to read it today, but if you look on, you'll find in chapter 38, verses 1 to 7, of the making of the altar. This was God telling Moses how it should be made. And then you'll read of the actual making of the altar, that it was done exactly as had been prescribed. You know something, that, that can be quite difficult to do something exactly as according to the design. Because sometimes the designer isn't maybe aware of different problems that lie, that might be dug up when they're digging or when they're building or when the, whatever they're doing. And you'll even find that in our new building. That there's things that maybe you saw in a picture were designed a certain way, but then in reality they've turned out maybe a slightly different way. Even just at the very front. If you look at Warwick's pictures, there's steps at the front, but then as the process goes on, then the decision's made, no, maybe it's not a good idea to have steps. And there are very few things, anyone that's ever built a house will know that it's very, very rare that the builders actually are able to fulfill the job exactly according to the plan that they've been given. Because they come up with different wee problems along the way, materials aren't available, things go wrong, and alterations have to be made. But God knew the end from the beginning and continues to know the end from the beginning. And he has already foreseen everything that could possibly have gone wrong, so he had planned ahead that it would not go wrong. And that's why when Moses and the craftsmen were putting the altar together, they were able to do it exactly as they had been told. Isn't it great to follow God's plans? Isn't it great that we don't need to worry what might go wrong? Because God already knows. And he already understands. So right back then, when we think about altars, altars had a, a significant and a special purpose then. Right back for these people in this tabernacle, these people living in tents in the wilderness, through their wanderings, Altars had a, a significant and a special purpose for them. Broadly speaking, what's an altar? An altar is any structure upon which offerings or sacrifices are made for religious purposes. That sounds a bit boring, doesn't it? But there are many different religions and many different uh, practices throughout the world where they observe an altar. But we have to think biblically and spiritually. And biblically speaking, an altar is a place of consecration. Yes, there was a lot of stuff went on there, and there was a lot of different things about altars, but most importantly, and I suppose unique to, or significant to every single altar that has ever been built within Scripture, was that it was a place of consecration. Often built to, to commemorate a, a significant encounter with God. God worked so profoundly in individual lives that those people then in turn built an altar to create a tangible memorial. They built it to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart onto God, to worship God. 
and to build something that was there as a memorial to what God had done and to the decisions that they had made regarding it. Sometimes God himself commanded that an altar be built. Whenever he had done something miraculous, so that it would be a memorial to, to his mighty works for future generations. So that when others would come along many years later and see that altar, that what was this about? And that they would then understand the story of what God had previously done and what God might do again. The whole idea of an altar was that people came there to sacrifice. The whole idea of sacrifice goes right back to Cain and Abel in the very first book of the Bible. There in their story, an altar isn't specifically mentioned. But it's highly likely that that's what they used when they made their offerings to the Lord. The first mention of the actual word altar goes back to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. When Noah was leaving the ark, after the 40 days and 40 nights of floating about at the mercy of the, the winds and the rain, not knowing where they would land, stuck in that ship with all of those animals, as soon as the, they found land, as soon as that ark came to rest, and they were able to let down the, the, the ramp and enter out through the door and set foot on dry land, the first thing Noah did was that he built an altar and offered sacrifice. There are 400 references to altars in the Bible. But what was the, the primary purpose of this tabernacle altar, this brazen altar or bronze altar or the different names it comes under? Well, Hebrews 9 and verse 22 tells us that under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the only way for those people going right back as far as Cain and Abel in the garden, the only way for them to find any degree of forgiveness for their sin and their wrongdoing as they worship God was to offer sacrifice. And this morning I could go into a whole teaching just on that. In fact, Vivian was talking to me about what I was going to talk about this morning, and she was laughing at me because I said that, uh, what was it I said, Vivian, Alan's taking the mic, giving me half an hour to talk on something that endless books have been written about. But we'll try and, we'll try and contain it and focus on, on what's important to us. So suffice then to say, yes, you can go and study it all yourself, look into the whole thing of sacrifice and the blood being needed to atone for sin and cover the sin and forgive sin and why that all was the case. And then you can take that right through until Hebrews 10 and verse 12. It says that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The work was done all had been accomplished that needed to be done, he had finished. As he cried out from the cross, it is finished. And he went and he sat down at the right hand of God. 
signifying that no further sacrifices needed to be made. There was no need for the shedding of any more blood. His blood was enough. Through Jesus, we have clear and direct access to the Father. We no longer need the sacrifices of bulls and of goats. But you know something? We do still need places of consecration. We do still need acts of consecration. We need those moments where we just stop and take time with God just to, to meditate on what he has done for us, what he's continuing to do in us, and to put aside all the other cares and worries of life to focus on him. We need those places of consecration. We need those altars still. If you look at the, the next picture, the tabernacle had one gate or one entrance. I think you can see it there okay. It was a huge curtain, went right around the whole outer court, but there was only one entrance. Struck me as interesting that in our, in our new church building, we have only one entrance. Everyone will take the same approach. They'll all come in from that wee path and they'll all come to the same glass doors. Yes, there might be a couple of other doors, but they're not for coming in there for escaping in a hurry. The tabernacle had one gate, one entrance, signifying that there's no back doors with God. You can't sneak in another way. You can only come by the way that he has designed, the way that he has planned, the way that he calls. Jesus said, I am the way. Do you know something in this modern age, people try to tell you a million different ways to God. The whole new age idea, and there's a wee bit of value in every religion, and you can take a bit of this and a bit of that. You can go here and go there. And it's like a, a fellow up in, in London Derry said to me one time, he says, Pastor, why do all you boys tell lies? And he says, what do you mean? And I was a bit offended at him. What do you mean, why do we all tell lies? He says, I've never been to a funeral where they don't say, oh, he's looking down on us now and he's with the Lord. And he says, there's never any question that when someone dies. Because the message is that it doesn't matter what way you live your life, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter even really what you think, that we're all okay in the end. Well, I just wouldn't be so sure about that. Jesus said he was the way, one way. Upon entering through the, the tabernacle gate, everyone saw this, this altar set before them. It blocked their view of anything else. They understood that God, for them, lay somewhere beyond that. They understood the, the whole idea of that there was a tent within the tent. There was a room beyond the room. There was somewhere else that they needed to get to where where the, the very presence of God resided. But here was this huge burning fire pit. It was the single biggest and most important item in the whole outer court of the tabernacle. There was no way to God except coming by way of the altar. You couldn't get past it. You couldn't get by it. The priests were there. There was a, a specific way of approach and you came there and you made your sacrifice in hope of finding the presence of God beyond. 
way back in 2019 in that previous series that Alan talked about, he said, when we build altars, we get altered. Can I add that maybe the reverse? That when we get altered, we build an altar. It works two ways. We build an altar, God alters us. Our consecration becomes a little bit deeper, so we build another altar. And God continues to change us. We continue to draw closer to Him. The acts of consecration go on. We develop and grow and mature in our Christian walk. Maybe that's why King David, when we read of him moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, we find that he built an altar every six steps. Maybe that's what that was about. He built an altar, God did something. He built an altar in worship, God did something. And he kept having to take those six steps, build another altar. Why six steps? Well, every seventh step, the ark rested. Again, no mistakes with God. Marking the fact that he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he Sabbathed. So people came to this altar. They made their sacrifices. Their sins were covered. Our sins are covered by Jesus' sacrifice. We understand we still need to come for acts of consecration, devotion, and worship. But I wonder today, how does the altar continue speaking to us with purpose today? It's all great to learn about these things in history and say that's all very interesting and that's good. But how really does it speak to us today? We've read that the altar was made of two materials, wood and brass. That speaks of the dual nature of Christ, the fact that he was fully man and fully God. But I wonder, could it, wonder could it also speak of the dual nature of sacrifice? And what do I mean? Some of you, most of you maybe will know that I breed sheep. Yeah, real life fluffy ones walk about in the field. It's something to do as a hobby. I have a few female sheep. I have a few couple of male sheep. I produce wee lambs. I take my sheep to shows and show them throughout the summer months. In fact, even as I say, this same weekend last year, I was in Castle Wellen the day before. I was in Castle Wellen yesterday at the show in the forest park there, showing my sheep. And whenever you take your sheep and look at them in your own field, you think they're the best sheep. They're flipping lovely. They're great. Look what, and you have a bit of pride because you're involved in the breeding. You have looked at that female. You've looked at what rams you have. You've worked out what you're going to do. The lambs are looking fantastic. You think they're great. But then you take them to a show. And maybe somebody else doesn't think they're as great. There's somebody walks about with a nice badge on him saying he's a judge and he puts a shirt and tie on and he makes himself all important and he's a big stick. And he walks about and looks at those sheep out running about in a show ring. And you're waiting patiently at the side and then he points at one for somebody to catch it. And then he points at another and you're thinking, oh, flip sake, there's first and second. 
And he points, and going, oh boy, here I am. Look, I'm way down the line here. I'm fifth or sixth or something here. This is rubbish today. But then you get all lined up. And then he walks up and down the line, and he examines those sheep more closely. And then he might swap places. He might say, you move up a space. You move down. Yours is maybe not as good as his, as his on closer examination. But in all of that process, you're putting your sheep on the altar of judgment. You're laying them out there for someone else to have an opinion on them. You have to make a sacrifice of the mind. That maybe they're not as good as you thought they were. Or at least you're laying forward that possibility. As someone else, a few weeks back at our show in Oma, one of our breeders who has been very successful in past years, didn't do particularly well on that day, and whenever we'd finished, we're sitting eating our sandwiches, and he said to me, you only think you have good sheep till you come here. They say they look good on their own. But when you're laying them up for comparison with others, you only think yours are good. So there's that sacrifice of the mind, that altar of judgment. But then in a few weeks' time, I'll take some sheep to the seal. To our official pedigree seal. And there I have to make a sacrifice of the heart on the altar of surrender. Because I have to be prepared to offer them up and let them go. It's interesting with God that, with man, sorry, he wants the best for himself. That's the advice I've been given in breeding sheep is only keep your best ones. But then God asks us for the best. In all of this Old Testament sacrificial system, and all of these people that sacrificed their bulls and their goats, God wanted the best. He wanted them without blemish, without spot. And yet he rewarded them for being prepared to surrender. He said that the altar was the single biggest thing in the tabernacle court. It was approximately 2.3 meters square. And that was big enough to hold all the other items of the tabernacle. I wonder is your altar big enough? on which to lay it all. Is it big enough on which to lay it all? You know, I've had, I have a big barbecue now. In fact, I have maybe two or three barbecues. We like the old family barbecue. We have a gas one, we have a charcoal one, we have a smoker. We like to cook up a feast. But there's been times in the past where my barbecue hasn't been big enough. When we've maybe went away for the day and I've bought one of those wee disposable things and you buy a few burgers and you can't fit enough burgers, it, it heats in one spot. You can't, heat, you can't cook enough burgers to feed the family all at the one time. You're having to shuffle them around and move them and try and cook a bit of this one and a bit of that one. But you know, God doesn't want us sacrificing one wee burger on the corner of one wee barbecue. God wants our altar big enough to take it all. The next slide, you'll, you'll see something that I read just the other day. And it really struck me quite profoundly. G. 
Jesus is worth everything you're afraid of losing. Jesus is worth it all. He doesn't want a, a wee religious token of what we can afford to give. He wants us. He wants you. He wants me. All of you. All of me. All of us together. And he won't do anything more in our new building, as excited as we are about it, than what we let him do in us. It's less about up there, and it's more about in here. Because it's as the work goes on in us that we best fit what he wants to do up the hill. It's by letting God work in us that he best equips us and best prepares us for how he wants to use us so that we might see that new building being used to its best potential. Romans 11 ends with the words, from him and through him and to him are all things. And then Romans 12 begins with these words, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Vivian has a saying that uh, she holds back on, but she said it this morning coming in the road in the car. The problem with a living sacrifice is that it crawls off the altar. And the Bible tells us a story of Abraham taking Isaac to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah as instructed by God. Genesis 22. And the, the, the Jews have a, a special term for that story. They call it the Akita, the binding. Because Isaac was tied to the altar. He was a living sacrifice. He carried the, the, the sticks for the altar to light the fire. He carried them up the mountain himself, the story tells us. But when he got there, his father built the altar, laid the fire, put him on the altar, and tied him to it. Maybe we need to climb on the altar and tie ourselves to it too, so we don't keep getting off. I'm coming to an end quickly here. A few final thoughts. The tabernacle priests weren't allowed to let the altar fire go out. Wonder today, has our fire gone out? Or was still burning for Jesus? The Bible tells us stories too of times of rebellion and of idolatry when the Lord's altars fell into disrepair. I wonder today, here this morning, have we got some altars to, to repair? Have we got altars to rebuild? The description of the tabernacle altar tells us that the altar had four horns. That intrigued me because the sheep that I have the ja are Jacob's sheep, dating right back to Jacob in the Bible. And those sheep can have either two horns or four. They're the only sheep with four horns. And the altar had four horns. I've never been attacked by a ram. But it's always good to know what you should do in case that happens. And 
the experts say that if a ram charges you, you should stand and wait. And when he gets close, grab him by the horns. <laughs> I honestly can't say that I would see myself waiting till he would get close enough when he's coming running. I think my idea would be to try and get out of there quicker than him. But that's what the experts say, that in that moment, you should grab him by the horns. With our, there's that urgency. The theory is that you're supposed to then be able to turn his head, flip him on his back, and show him who's boss. But the altar in the Bible had four horns. According to Exodus 21, fugitives seeking asylum could grab hold of the horns of the altar and ask for mercy. I wonder today, maybe there's someone here who needs to run and grab hold of the horns of the altar based on what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary. I want us to finish this morning with communion. Not as couples or as families like our normal practice would be. Not with anyone else. But I want us to come to the communion table this morning and see the table as an individual altar of significant encounter. That it's about business between you and God. It's about consecration. Setting yourself apart in dedication and devotion. It's about forgiveness. It's about mercy. It's about all of these things. It's not about excluding yourself. Certainly, we're not to take communion lightheartedly. But there's an old Northern Ireland thing where if we've done something wrong, we've committed sin, we've fallen out with someone, we've said something we shouldn't have said, we come to church, we feel bad about it. And we, we then withhold ourselves from partaking of the communion. Because we get caught up in where it says, so let a man examine himself. So we examine ourselves according to our own judgment. But I believe what Paul was really instructing us to do was to examine ourselves in light of Christ's judgment and to realize he's already paid the price. Don't hold back, but run forward, grab hold of those horns and find his mercy and his forgiveness. Paul instructs us as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and keep remembering. So this morning, as me finished, the guys are going to play a song, Draw Me Close to You, and let's come and partake of the bread and the juice and remember Jesus. Amen.